Amen. Amen. So uh, today we are in um, Luke chapter 7. We are in a sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And so I want to talk to us this morning about uh, how forgiveness in a Christian's life uh, brings about a uh, fruit of love. How forgiveness in a Christian's life brings about a fruit of love. How the forgiveness of God leads to the love that is poured out in the person who is receiving that love. Forgiveness creates a fruit of love. So let me begin by uh, starting off this way. Uh, The very central uh, message of the gospel, uh, the uh, very central message of the Bible is the gospel. And the gospel says that Jesus, the, the Son of God, came, lived, died, rose again in our place and for the forgiveness of uh, sins to bring us into a place of just right, unhindered, uh, eternal relationship with God. And the Bible says that God gives us this good news as a gift. And the Bible calls that gift grace. Grace. Meaning that we are undeserving people. In fact, we are ill-deserving people people, we are just unworthy for God to come and just love us in such a wonderful way, but he does because our God is a good God. He is a good God, And 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 he calls this present that he gives us, he calls it grace, grace, and he gives it freely to those who will receive it by faith. Now, now here's the thing about grace, though. Here's the thing about grace that makes it really just so hard to grasp and, and to wrap our, our minds around this and kind of hang on to this to allow it to flow in the daily streams of, of life is that grace, by definition, is in every way counterintuitive. Every way it is counterintuitive. It, it is not the way that our brains are wired to think. Because everything in this world has rightly conditioned us to believe in something called conditionality. Can you do me a favor? Can you say conditionality? In every area of life, performance precedes acceptance. Performance precedes acceptance. Just think about it like this. First you achieve, and then you receive. First you achieve achieve, then you receive in every area of life. First you win the game, and then you get the trophy. If you don't win the game, guess what? You're you're not going to get the trophy. It is conditional, conditional. First you pass the test, then you get the degree. First you do the work, and then you get the paycheck. Like it doesn't work the other way around. First you work out, and then you get the abs right? That's the way that it works, right? There's a price to be paid for that, and it is conditionality. Conditionality. Outcome is always conditional on performance. And the thing is, this isn't wrong, though, right? It's not wrong, but this is the very fabric of the world that we live in. This is how our world works, And by the way, this is how every other religion works as well, right? The same way, karma, nirvana, enlightenment, paradise, because comes to those who achieve it, who are good enough, 
who, who just jump through the religious and moral hoops to go and to achieve it. And so everything, everything from uh, religion to academics to, to business to sports to competition to, uh, to even parenting, you, you get out what you put in. Good things come to good people and bad things come to bad people. That's the way that it works, and that is called conditionality. First you achieve, then you receive. And, and that's not wrong, but that is the way that our world works. If you, do, if, if, you, if you don't reap, then you're not going to sow. Right? But Jesus Christ comes in with this thing called the gospel, comes in and he absolutely flips just the entire lens that we look through. This, this world looks through just upside down on its head. And the gospel comes and Jesus says this. He says, first you receive and then you achieve. First you receive and then you achieve. And grace is, uh, grace is this idea, right, that with God, you get the trophy before you even compete. Before you even lift a finger, you win. It is this idea that you receive the, the love of the Father before you achieve absolutely anything. Because Jesus Christ, he already competed for you. Jesus Christ has already taken the test for you. Jesus Christ has achieved perfection for you, and that's why it is called grace. That is why it is called grace. The gospel does not say that good people get good things. The gospel does not say that bad people get bad things. The gospel says that there are no good people, that there are, there are only bad people, right? Bad people get the love. Bad people get grace. Bad people get the blessings from God. If we would just humble ourselves and just admit, just admit, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person, and I receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, and it is called grace. Now, when I say that, I think the natural place that all of our minds go to is this. Like it's, when we think about grace, our minds go here. So, so you're saying, okay, God's blessings and God's favor is not contingent upon anything that I do. It is not conditional on my moral performance. Then, Finn, isn't it true then, like, I could do whatever I want to do? Right? I mean, won't grace just really lived out lead, to, lead us to moral failure and just wild, worldly living? Like, don't we need to, like, balance this idea, Finn? Like, I mean, how dare you get up here and preach that stuff, right? Like, aren't you concerned that, you know, everyone's going to go out there and start living wild? Like, aren't you concerned about that? Don't we need to kind of balance the gospel with this stern talking to church family? That, that we need to keep this in mind. Don't we need to do that? And that is where our minds go to when we start talking about grace. But what we're going to see this morning in the 15 verses that um, Leanne read for us that we're going to dive into is that grace rightly 
perceived and experienced will bear a fruit of loving obedience. Not unloving disobedience, but loving obedience. We're going to see a picture of a very sinful, a very notorious, a very scandalous woman who meets Jesus and experiences this counterintuitive grace. That's what we're going to see. And, and her response is not like disdainful indifference towards the, the laws and the rules of God, but a heart of loving obedience, worship to Jesus Christ. And when she, and she, when she encounters this amazing grace, we see that her response is love. Her response is love. Jesus said this. Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much, right? Likewise, at the same time, we're going to see this Pharisee, and we're going to see this very religious, self-righteous uh, guy who's just a, a, a rule keeper who needs to, 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 to apply receiving grace in his life, but he doesn't, right? He, he doesn't. He sees no need for forgiveness because he's completely unself-aware of his own sin. And unlike this sinful prostitute, we, we are going to see this religious man leave the scene with his cold, unworshipful, unrepentant, disobedient heart toward Jesus. See, it wasn't that he took grace too literally, or, or it wasn't that he received too much, but that he was unwilling to receive it all together. And so the key question for us this morning is this. I want us to ask ourselves this question is, which one am I? Which one are you? Whose worship does your worship reflect? Is it that of the Pharisee or is it that of the prostitute? Whose love does your love reflect? That of the prostitute or that of the Pharisee? Have I really understood this need for grace in my life? Have I really received it in my life? And so let's get right down into it. We're going to look in these verses again, chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And we're just going to walk right through these verses. And we're going to see how the forgiveness in our love produces a fruit of love in this woman. So let's read again, verse 36. It says this, one of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. All right, so uh, real quick, the Pharisees, if uh, anyone does not know what a Pharisee is, well, uh, they're part of this religious Jewish elite class, and they were this devout uh, group of rule keepers. And they went to great lengths to, to make sure that they were ceremonially clean, uh, ceremonial customary dietary laws of the Old Testament, so this way they do not offend God. And these people, they love to argue, they love to debate the, the fine nuances of, of theology and just scriptural interpretation. They, they love to do that. And this particular Pharisee, we find out, we find out later on that his name is uh, actually Simon. And Simon invites Jesus over to his home for a dinner party. Now, you would get invited over to have like a debate or just uh, to talk about the scripture. And so it was customary in that time to invite fellow teachers over to the house. And so um, they would likely have had these tables low to the ground. 
right? And, and then they would have uh, just kind of laid on, this, on their side. Uh, they're lounging and they're eating a meal, almost kind of laying on the ground, and their feet is away from the table, and they would eat and they would discuss. They would discuss. Most likely, Simon wants to debate Jesus on some Old Testament uh, verses. He probably, he, and he also probably wants to scope out uh, this guy, Jesus, this new teacher that's on the scene who has created quite a stir among the people. Probably just want to check him out. So verse 37, it says this. They're eating. It says, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, that's Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and it says, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, in this scene, it is, uh, we see a very unlikely guest who comes in and crashes the dinner party of Simon the Pharisee. Our author, Luke, he has given a very short description and just basically he just says, hey, this is a woman of the city. Woman of the city, she is a great sinner, a sinner and we don't know her name. Right? He doesn't mention her name. Um, as I was preparing this sermon this week and just diving in, I was just reading so many commentaries and uh, every commentary I, I read, all the theologians basically, most of them basically said this woman was most likely Mary Magdalene. Um, but, but, they're not, but we're not sure though. I mean, formally in the next chapter, we see in chapter 8, right, Mary Magdalene come into the scene. But we don't know for sure if this woman is Mary Magdalene. Some speculate that Luke chose not to say her name because he did not want to public, publicly shame this woman. It was very likely that this woman was alive when Luke was writing this gospel. But the thing is, we don't know for sure. We're not sure. But what we do know is this. This was a woman of the city and that she was a great sinner. Okay? She was most likely not a Sunday school teacher here. Okay? Like we get this idea of who this woman is. Most like, like she was not a virgin. She was most likely a prostitute. She was most likely a lady who avails herself to the men of the city. And this is how she makes a living. This is how she gets by. And I don't know, possibly, right, though we don't know, maybe she might have been of service to some of the men in, the city, in, the, in this gathering here. We're not sure. We don't know. But what we do know is this, is that her reputation has negatively preceded her right into this dinner party. She is an unwelcome guest. She does not fit in this religious circle of all men. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment here, okay? I want you to imagine for a moment in the first century, right, this young lady who is just barges right into this religious, theological, debating dinner party here in the home of Simon the Pharisee. Imagine how scared this woman must have been when she is just considering whether or not she's going to walk right in that home. Because this was not a place for this woman, right? But on that particular night, though, something was different. Maybe she watched from far off this Jesus fellow 
walk into the Pharisee's house. Maybe, just maybe, this woman has heard some rumors of Jesus early on in his ministry, went against the Pharisees and argued with them, debated with them on issues like the Sabbath and and keeping it holy, and how Jesus was not intimidated by these intimidating men. He was not. That Jesus stood up for what is right. Jesus stood up for what is true. Maybe this woman has heard the rumors of how Jesus has healed the man of leprosy. Maybe she heard the the rumors of how Jesus has healed the man with a withered hand. Maybe she heard the rumor of just the previous month when Jesus healed the widow's son and raised him from the dead, as a local town people say in the neighboring town of Nain. Maybe she heard the rumors of Jesus that was on the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And Jesus preached to the masses saying, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And this lady maybe heard those rumors of Jesus' teaching and how refreshing it must have seemed to her. Right? It's such a religious culture of judgment that is there. And here is the woman, right? Here is a woman that if she could just somehow, somehow get to Jesus, even if it meant going into the home of Simon the Pharisee, who maybe even publicly shamed her before, right? But, but, but she's thinking, I just need to get to the presence of Jesus, and then everything would be okay. If I get to Jesus's presence, then everything would be safe. And maybe she knew that there was something about Jesus, something about him, that if I could just get by his side, everything is going to be okay. And just like the leper that we heard about last Sunday, whose sores were washed away by Jesus Christ, maybe even her guilt and her shame that she carried with her would be washed away. Jesus Christ. Maybe she knew that there's something about him that only if I could get into his presence, then everything would be okay. It's very likely this woman didn't consider herself to be just valuable, to be there in his presence. She didn't think of herself as being worthy, but it was not about her worthiness. It was about Jesus If she could just get there, she had a hunch that Jesus, the man, this man was going to answer all of the questions that she had ever asked in her entire life. What a beautiful picture this is. Church, think about this. What a beautiful picture this is. I've preached this sermon so many times before in my life, and, and I love preaching this passage right here because I hope this woman is a picture of our church, right? There's no matter, it doesn't matter, no matter how much guilt that we carry, whatever we think that we have done well, or whatever whatever we think in the areas that we have blown it, that we would be a church just like this woman who does whatever it takes to get into the presence of Jesus, no matter what is the cost, but to be in his presence. We don't have to clean up even when we think that we blew it. We don't have to 
wait for our reputation to kind of self-correct through six months of obedience or, or six years, right? But that we will continually run to Jesus just like this prostitute. It says that the woman brought an alabaster a flask of ointment. Now, uh, alabaster was this uh, translucent, uh, this translucent fine-grained stone material. It would have been carved very ornately. It must have uh, most likely preserved perfume in that day, and it was used for ceremonial purposes. Um, but it was often used, though, for just display. It, I mean, this thing was so valuable that they didn't, they didn't even use it. It might have been passed down just generation after generation on display only. But this woman comes and she brings it. She brought everything that she has. And it says that she is standing before Jesus. Verse 38, it says that she is weeping. She's weeping. Now, the, the word for weeping here that Dr. Luke, our author, chooses, it is very significant. Okay, the word that he chooses here, it describes her tears, and it is mentioned five other times in the New Testament. And every time it is used, it is used to describe a rain shower, a rain shower. So basically, Dr. Luke is saying, hey, this lady over here, she is not whimpering. She's not whimpering. I mean, just imagine she is just so overwhelmed with this complex set of emotions in that moment that she just cannot hold it back. She's likely, a, she's likely remorseful over her sin, and she's feeling the brokenness of her sin and the shame that she's going through, and she's weeping over her sin, and she is repenting about her sin. And at the same time, simultaneously, at the same time, she has never felt as loved and accepted in all of her life in that moment. Just being at the feet of Jesus, something makes this woman just come undone and her eyes went up and, and just like faucets, tears start coming down. And I don't know, maybe she's embarrassed to be in the presence of these, a bunch of stoic men that are there and she's bawling and she, she has no idea what to do. But in that moment, though, in that moment, she, she looks through her tears and she realizes Jesus' feet has not been washed as they ought to have been. You see, it was uh, customary in that day uh, for the house guests, like Simon, to have a basin there so that uh, for the guests to wash his, their feet. And even if it was a man with just resources, this man would have a servant that would come along and, the, and that would wash the, the house guests' feet. And so because Jesus was traveling to Simon's house, Jesus would have traveled roads that are very different than the roads that we have today, right? There were, there were dirt, and the traffic over there was livestock and animals, and Jesus had his open toe sandals. And so, you know, he arrives to the house with dirty feet, dirty feet, likely covered with um, animal feces, mud, dirt on, on his feet, but Simon has not taken the courtesy to wash his feet. And so here the woman avails her tears, and this woman washes the feet of Jesus. It says that she lets down her hair. Think about this. She lets down her hair. This right here is an act culturally 
it would have just been almost promiscuous. Right? This act right here would have been scandalous for her to do this. Though it's not forbidden, though, in the Old Testament, but it would have demonstrated to them that this was a scandalous woman. But she does not care. She does not care because Jesus' feet needed to be dried. And then it says that she takes out this alabaster flask of ointment and she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume. A very great and expensive cost to this woman. It says this in verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, Notice he's not talking out loud here. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I love this. I love this right here. Simon is here. He's disturbed by what's happening. I mean, do you sense the irony that's taking place here? This right here is a beautiful picture of worship. This religious guy is concerned, and he's saying, this guy is not a prophet, because if he was a prophet, he would have known what type of woman this is. And I love what Jesus does in the next verse right here. Jesus is going to interrupt his private thoughts. Imagine how scared he must have been. Imagine how shocked this guy must have felt. Verse 40, it says this, and answering, he said to him, Simon, I have something I want to say to you. Imagine the blood pressure here. Simon is startled. He answered, uh, say it, teacher. Essentially, he's going to say, see, Simon, I am a prophet uh, because I know both her sins and I know your private thoughts. I am going to teach you something, Simon, right now. Hashtag, here it comes. Hashtag, buckle up, religious Simon. Here we go. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 50 denarii and the other uh, 50. um, uh, One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for him for whom he canceled the larger debt. Imagine how proud he must have felt right now with that answer. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So right now, Jesus is going to use a parable that Jesus often did to make sure that that we understand the most simplest of terms what is taking place in this scene. So that Simon gets it and also we get it as well. What's taking place here? And he uses a banking analogy. A banking analogy. There is a banker, there is a money lender. There's these two dudes who owe some money. One owes 500 denarii, the other owes 50 denarii. And so a denarii was one day's wage, uh, one day of labor. And so maybe it would be $100 in our context today. So one owes 50, so that's about two months of wages, and the other owes two years worth of wages. And it says that, you know, neither could pay the the money lender back. And so what does the banker say? The banker says, I'll forgive 
both of your debts. And so he asks a simple question. The simple question is this, which of these two men will love the banker more? Which one of them? Simon answers correctly, right? Simon says, well, I suppose the one whom he forgives the, the larger debt. And, and he's right. He's, he's right. The, the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate is this, is that our sins come with a great cost. Comes with a great cost. They come with a great cost against a holy God, against a righteous God. And we, throughout the course of our lives, we rack up a debt of sin before God. And that sin needs to be paid. It has to be paid. And the question for you and for me is, how much debt do we owe God? How much debt do we owe God? Are we a 50-level sinner or are we a 500-level sinner? Which one are we? Think of it this way. If God had an accounts uh, receivable department, if God had one, and, and quarterly he's going to send a bill for your sins, what would your bill be? What would it be? What would your sin bill be? On your sin bill would, would be this. Every critical judgment you have made. Every lustful thought you have had. It would be every impatient moment. It would also include the things that you have done, exaggerating on your taxes, yelling at your spouse, being impatient with your kids or your roommate, every website that you have visited, every gambling addiction that you have downplayed. It would also include things that you haven't done, but you should have done. Every person that you should have helped, but you did not. The time that uh, God told you to bless a ministry or write a check, but you felt not to do that. The time that you chose social media over that time of prayer. The time that you went to email, though God told you to go to scripture that morning. And suppose you open up your mailbox open it up and you receive the debt of sin how much would your sin bill be would it be a little bit like a 50 level sinner how would it or would it be a lot bit like a 500 level sinner and that is the question for us which one are we and, and listen Jesus is not saying here that some of us, you know, are little sinners, therefore we have little bills, and some of us are big sinners and we have no uh, big bills. His point is that everyone is a big sinner. Everyone is a big sinner that has a debt of sin that needs to be paid back. And the problem is that some of us just don't realize it. We, we don't realize it don't realize it. And that is the problem with Simon the Pharisee here. He thought that his bill was short. He, he didn't think that he owed Jesus anything. He didn't think he owed him, him anything. He didn't feel like he needed the grace of Jesus. 
therefore, his heart, it's callous. He doesn't receive forgiveness, and therefore, in his heart, there is no love. You see, the problem is not with his sin. The problem is with his perception of his sin. It's not with his sin. It's with his perception of his sin. He didn't realize how much sin that he really had. He had to, he had to just totally undervalued his value of sin. And he took away the zero, took it away from the equation, and he thought he doesn't need any grace. He had no love in his heart. But look, but look here in verse 44. Verse 44 is an awesome scene. In this scene, Jesus is going to make the prostitute, the teacher, the Pharisee, the student. And, and irony is present right here in this, in this scene right here. He, he, he's saying, hey, Mr. Pharisee, take some notes here, guy. Take some notes here on just how to be a holy person by this uneducated lady of the nights, okay? Because she is going to, in every way, she is, she is outpacing you. Verse 44, it says this. Then uh, turning toward the woman, he said, uh, to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. See, the 50 level sinner doesn't serve Jesus at all, but the 500 level sinner serves Jesus with everything she has, with everything she has. You see, the Pharisee doesn't see his need, right? He, he doesn't see his sin. He doesn't see how Jesus comes to serve him. Therefore, he reciprocates no service to Jesus, no service to Jesus. He needs to add a zero to his sin equation to see how much Jesus has served him. So let me ask us today, do you need to add a zero to the way that you see your sin? Do you realize how much debt you were in debt to God when Jesus came to pass, to, to pay that debt in service to you? Do you realize that today? You know how you'll know? The way that you'll know is that you will be inclined to reciprocate service to Jesus. Are you the kind of person who wants to serve Jesus with your free time, with your energy? with your expertise? Is your heart's posture like the prostitute here who comes willing to serve Jesus with everything she has? Or is your posture like the Pharisee? With the littlest, what's the littlest thing that I could do so that I could still be socially acceptable in this religious setting? Do you need a zero to the debt that you owe in your life? the way that Jesus has served you. Verse 40, 45, it says this, you gave me no kiss, Simon, but from this time that I came, from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. The 50 level sinner, Simon, shows zero, no affection, no love, no adoration for Jesus, right? He, he is not glad to see Jesus. 
the 500, the 500 level sinner doesn't stop pouring out love for Jesus an obvious physical adoration and worship and appreciation for Jesus. So how about you? How about you? Do you realize right now how much Jesus loves you? Do you realize how much he loves you that he left the comforts of heaven and if you were the only sinner on earth who needed to be saving, that out of love for you, that he would still leave the comforts of heaven to come and to rescue you. Do you realize how much Jesus loves you? That he would pay your debt, which was so significant. And we see in this passage, the way that you'll, you'll know that you'll have, you have been loved by Jesus is that you will respond will respond in love and worship to Jesus. So, th so think about your life. Think about your worship life right now. Think about your worship life and your adoration to Jesus. Does your worship reflect that of the Pharisee who stands bored and indifferent to, to Jesus? Or does your worship life reflect the prostitute who falls on her knees, that the posture of our heart is reflected in the posture of her body, and she worships Jesus. As we sing as a church soon, as we sing together on Sundays, do we sing together in adoration to Jesus, being in his presence? Are you brought to a position of being in awe of him? Or do you kind of stand bored? and just kind of indifferent, wishing the music genre was different, wishing just things were different? Or do you think about your sin? Do you think about it? The debt that God came to pay through his son, Jesus Christ. Does the posture of your heart look like the Pharisee, or does the posture of your heart look like this prostitute? Verse 46, it says this, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointments. The 50-level sinner is not generous toward Jesus. In fact, he is very cheap, right? He offers Jesus absolutely nothing. But the 500-level sinner, though she is poor, offers Jesus everything that she has. See, something happens in this woman's life. Something happens to her where Jesus is no longer her savior, but Jesus is her treasure. He is her treasure. And through an act of worship, she brought the only thing that she had value that she owned and puts it at the feet of Jesus and poured it out, communicating to Jesus, Jesus, you are my everything. You are my all in all. I would give everything because in you I have found everything for me. You have paid a debt that I could never pay back. Jesus, everything I have is yours. And church, I just want to uh, champion some of us that are here today who, you know, it makes, it makes me as a pastor emotional and worshipful to see some of you guys who have responded so generously. You know, in just three years, guys, we're only three years old. 
we're going to be three next month. Um, in just three years, many of you are just new followers. Uh, some of you have just uh, written tithe checks for the first time, maybe like months ago. And we are a church uh, with, with many new Christians, right? But you're, you're growing and you're giving and you're generous. And it's amazing to see when people turn to Jesus, not only as their Savior, but as their treasure. It's no longer, uh, it's no longer, you know, how do I keep my resources to myself, but how do I avail myself to the service and the love of Jesus to be on mission on, to, to, in a church and, and see people in need? And that is amazing. That's amazing to see that. And church, I just want to say, awesome job. You guys are killing it. You're, you're, worship, you're worshipful through your generosity, and I am in awe of what's happening. But I think it's a sign of our heart, right? It's a sign of our heart. So let me ask us, would we evaluate our heart and ask, how are you doing? Right? How are you doing? Do you see the resources like the Pharisees as your security that needs to be held on to and clinched tightly? Or do you, like the prostitute, just say, Lord, everything I have is yours. I'll pour out anything you have given me because you are my treasure. You gave your very life to pay the debt that I could never pay. Jesus, everything I have is yours. Two more sections and I'm going to close. I'm going to land this plane. Verse 47, it says this. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, she is a 500 level sinner, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Let me sum it up here, uh, what Jesus is saying right here. Where there's big forgiveness, there, there will be big love. And when there's little forgiveness, there will be little love. For Simon the Pharisee, it wasn't that he didn't have big sin. The problem was his perception. That's the problem. He didn't know it. He was clueless. He, he didn't perceive how deep his sin really was. And so he'll never cry out, just like this prostitute. He would never do that. So he will never experience or show the love to Jesus like this woman. And so church, let me just say this. There's so much freedom in adding a zero, right? And just admitting right now, man, I am a great sinner. I am a great sinner, right? Like, like to not have to pretend anymore, to not have to compete, to not have to compare anymore. I mean, there is great freedom in that. It is liberating, right? When you can just say, you know what? I am a 500-level sinner. Now forget that I am a 5,000-level sinner. I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to perform. I come to Jesus empty-handed, and he is all that I need. And here's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't matter how deep that our sin goes. It doesn't matter. His grace is deeper even still. So we don't have to pretend we're 50. We don't have to pretend we're 500. There is great freedom just admitting that. 
and just saying, I don't have it all together, right? My confidence is not in myself, but it's in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, her sins, which are many, right, are forgiven. And that is the great news. Jesus is not a God who is looking for people to bless, right? He's a God who's looking for people that have many sins that can, for, he can forgive and use for his kingdom and for his glory. There's no level of sin that can separate you from the love of God.